me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we will consider a very important biblical text that will help us think deeply about the cross. There's a new book that has recently been printed entitled Rich Wounds, Rich Wounds, written by David Mathis, subtitled The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. Wonderful book. He asks, as regards this text that we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 1, with a reference to the uh, Isaac Watts hymn you will recognize. He asked the question, how can a cross be wonderful? Puritan pastor and prolific hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, by the way, this hymn was published in 1707, so more than 300 years ago. In the first couplet of one of the most cherished of his songs, of the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it is a striking phrase, wondrous cross. The cross, that odious Roman method of public execution, in the sordid history of human evil, few paths of execution have been more painful and shameful than that of death by crucifixion. And yet that cross is somehow wonderful. Saying that the cross is wondrous would be like saying today that the electric chair is magnificent or that lethal injection is delightful or that death by firing squad is beautiful. Wouldn't only a sick and deranged person put labels like wonderful and beautiful on such a horrible and tragic event as the destruction of human life? With the cross being one of the most horrible of all, on the one hand, and with the tragedy compounded immeasurably by the fact that the one executed did not deserve to die. And he spends the balance of that chapter explaining why, in fact, the cross is wonderful. We will consider the biblical record today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 18, one very familiar paragraph. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
It is uh, no small thing today on this Palm Sunday that we remember the power of the cross. And we think specifically of the coming of Christ to Jerusalem uh, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that he would come into the city, the place where prophets go to die, by the way, into the city, riding on the back of the foal or the colt of a donkey that had never been ridden, just as the Old Testament had prophesied. And they would be greeted in the manner in which a returning uh, military ruler would be greeted uh, with shouts of Hosanna and Hallelujah and a welcoming committee of certainly hundreds, maybe thousands, we're not sure exactly. People responding to Jesus with the laying down of their garments as well as palm branches before him in the manner in which they would welcome a returning king. I am reminded today that as we think of the cross, for many here, the cross is uh, the old, old story. Many of us have heard of the cross a long, long, long time. There are many in this audience who have heard of the cross for more than 70 years, some more than 80 years, and we're thankful for your witness even today. But there are others here who have only recently heard of the cross and embraced the cross, and of course there are those outside of this congregation today who regrettably have no idea the story of the cross. Even in Mississippi, which by all counts, is the most religious of all states. I'm told Utah has eclipsed Mississippi now. But uh, we're either 1 or 1A, being religious compared to our sister states around the nation. But even in Mississippi, there are children today, young people, maybe even young adults, who've grown up without as much as a moment of teaching about Christ, about the cross, about the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the purpose of the cross, and what is the cross, if not merely a piece of jewelry that some people choose to wear. Well, this passage tells us plainly that the word of the cross is central to the Bible. In fact, I have made much of this in my ministry with you, and I will continue to do so until God takes my breath away. And that is that the Bible is the New Testament is not an afterthought to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is not some appendage that we're trying to get rid of as attached to the New Testament, because after all, we are New Covenant followers of Christ, and indeed we are. But I assure you that these two pieces that uh, we call Old and New Testament serve as a unit or a unity in revealing the promise of God to accomplish His will. You need look no further here in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 19. You'll note that if you have a Bible that sets apart Old Testament uh, quotations, <coughs> you will note this particular section is set apart. Uh, it is in quotations, if you will, because the Apostle Paul, who is clearly a New Testament theologian, thinking about God in the covenant of the New Testament, he quotes Isaiah 29. Isaiah prophesied some 750, 800 years or so before the coming of Christ. And so this 
this phrase is eight, eight centuries old. And if uh, you want to make the case today that somehow the Old Testament is disconnected from the New Testament, I would beg to differ. And I would suggest to you that the New Testament falls apart if you rip out the Old Testament from it. So as a result, we know then that this, this story of the cross, this message of the coming of Christ, is not simply something that God decided to do after plan A fell apart, didn't work. Instead, what we know here clearly in the New Testament is that from the beginning, the plan of God has been to bring about the culmination of His love for us and His demonstration of grace toward us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus, who came to this earth not merely to live a good life, not merely to show you uh, a better ethic, not merely to show you that you are, in fact, living a life that's going to end up in trouble or pain or sorrow. And that the purpose of Jesus coming is not simply to educate you on a better way of living. Rather, the purpose of Jesus coming is that having shown us the will of the Father in obedience to the Father, He then gave His life in submission to the plan of God to die on a cross. So we want to think deeply about this for a few minutes together this morning and consider this passage. The first thing we note in verse 18 is the phrase, the power of God. The cross then testifies to the power of God. I want you to think with me for a moment about that. I would note, first of all, that the cross is powerful in the defeat of sin. Sin. Uh, we could turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Again, the apostle writing says, therefore, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so the cross is necessary for the defeat of sin and for those of us who are Christians, who have the Spirit of God, we now have the power to overcome sin. The reality is that the allure of sin, if you will, the power of sin remains strong. The notion that somehow you can ever be free from temptation or ever be free from the power of the flesh to submit to temptation is simply not of this world. There are many theologies out there. People want to suggest, well, I became a Christian and I've never sinned since. You think, well, that's absurd. Well, of course it's absurd. But it never stopped people from making absurd statements. The notion that somehow we are beyond sin or that we are uh, not capable of sinning or that we are not interested in sinning anymore is just ridiculous. It, just, it, it, it has so many holes in it that it, it, it won't last the afternoon. I predict that by lunch, you will have lost count of how many times you've sinned. I would suggest that 
There are some, even in this very room, maybe watching by live stream, who are participating in some sort of hidden sin, whether it's prejudice or judgmentalism or vindictiveness or bitterness or unforgiveness. The notion that somehow you're beyond sin, beyond the temptation of sin, is just ridiculous. So what hope do we have if, if we are confined to this body of flesh? Well, we have this hope. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That does not mean that our sin is of no consequence. Rather, the Scripture says, for the law of the Spirit is life, and it has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. The power of the cross is to defeat sin and to give you the means whereby, by means of the cross and the blood of the cross and the sacrifice of the eternal Son of God, that you would be forgiven. The reason you are no longer condemned is not because you're not a sinner. The reason you're no longer condemned is because you are now rightly joined to the one who never sinned and who gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for you. And by being raised from the dead, conquered sin and the law of sin, the law of death. So we are set free, not on the basis of our accomplishment, not on the basis of our achievement, not on the basis of our power, not on the basis of our resolve to somehow stop doing bad things, but rather on the power of Christ who lives in me. Remember this, in John 16, Jesus tells to his people, stop clinging to me. It is necessary for you, it is better for you that I go away. It is a profound thing. Invariably, I talk to Christian after Christian, and they say, I wish Jesus were here. No, you don't. No, you don't. Not according to Jesus, John 16. He said, it's better for you that I go, because if I go, God will send the comforter. He will send the one to live in you. And I will sit at the right hand of the Father, and I will pray for you. But you will have strength, you will have power to overcome sin, to turn away from temptation, to avert your eyes, to avert your thoughts, to clean up your life, not because of you, buddy, but because of the power of God. The cross testifies to the power of God over sin. That is to say, then, that those who do not have the power of the cross do not have power over their own sin. But if you're a Christian, friend, you do. But it's not your power. Rather, it is the power of God over sin. Let no one say here that I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, in one sense, that's true. You couldn't help yourself. But if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And you have every resource that God intends for you to be helped. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. This is the will of God. And it is the power of God made possible by the cross. Thanks be to God. The cross testifies to the power of God in one other way. And that is the defeat of principalities and powers. I've made much of this when we were studying the book of Ephesians. I uh, would love to belabor it again and again and again. But I assure you, that time won't permit it. But I, I want to show you in chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 10, the 
writer of Hebrews makes much of the fact that Jesus is at war and has accomplished a cosmic victory. He has, by means of the cross, he has defeated cosmic powers. You see this plainly in Hebrews 10, verse 5 and following. Consequently, in his argument, we're joining his argument midstream. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Again, if you have a Bible that shows Old Testament quotations, that is Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Surely, you have not desired sacrifices and offerings, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by the way, the only book existing in the time of Christ is the Old Covenant. So the notion that somehow the Old Covenant does not testify of the sacrificial death of Christ is just absurd. When he said, verse 8, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. They are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, that is the writer of Hebrew referencing Christ, does away with the law, or rather with the first, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Remember, the ritual of the old covenant is that a priest would go in day after day after day after day after day after day, year after year after year, annually on the Day of Atonement, particularly for the high priest, and they would offer the blood of bulls and goats. Old Testament worship is bloody. Animals were raised for the purpose of slaughter. And he said, you've not taken pleasure in any of that. That is to say, ultimate pleasure. Verse 11, every high priest or every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Next, 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 next. It's Bill, then it's Bob, then it's Jim, then it's George. Next, next, next. But verse 12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I want you to note the difference in verse 11. The priest stands. Jesus sits. When does the priest sit? When he's finished. Then and only then. If it's your day, you better get your sleep beforehand because you're going to be on your feet all day long. But the Bible says Jesus made one sacrifice and he sat down. Why did he sit down? He sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. A reference to Psalm 110, the most prominent of all Old Testament Psalms. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The, the cross testifies to the power of God over principalities and powers in high places that we have no ability to even understand. I have no idea the conversations that are happening right now about you, about me. I don't know what Satan's doing. I don't know who he's interested in. I don't know who he's targeting. I don't know who's on his side. I don't know who's with him or against him. I don't know what God's saying or doing. I don't know anything about any of that as far as the specifics. But this I do know, that the Savior, the Son of God, the one who gave himself on that cross, is at the right hand of the Father, and he knows my name. It is a wondrous cross indeed because it is by means of that cross that Jesus defrocked the principalities and powers. They skirmish. They continue to chatter. They continue to work. They continue to inflict and afflict their pain on the world. You can't consider the world stage today without acknowledging that we live in a war zone and the war is not of earthly making but rather of heavenly making principalities and powers that stand against God. Read Ephesians 6. Be very much aware that your resources are spiritual, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, feet shod with the gospel of peace holding the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, praying at all times in the Spirit. This is the will of God for your life and for mine. It is the cross that testifies of the power of God. There's one other area where the cross testifies of power, and that is the power over death. These are familiar words, I'm sure, to most of us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, again quoting the Old Testament, here again from the book of Isaiah and Hosea, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But, very important conjunction, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What antidote do you have for death? Only one. And that is life. And the power of the cross makes that possible. The power of the cross accomplishes what nothing else can accomplish. It turns out there is no earthly fountain of youth. There is no water or elixir that you can drink that somehow uh, forestalls your death or somehow keeps you from dying. Dear friend, 
the world looks for hope in all kinds of places. If we can't live longer, at least we can live better. If we can't live longer, at least we can live with more toys. If we can't live longer, at least we can live with, you know, better sofas. If we can't live longer, at least we can drive better cars. If we can't live longer, at least we can go on better vacations. If we can't live longer, you know, at least we can enjoy life. I'm not suggesting that better vacations are not better than bad vacations or no vacations. I am suggesting that at the end of the day, none of those things solve the great problem of our lives, which is that one day you have an appointment with death. The mortal will put on the immortal. The corruptible will put on the incorruptible. And you will either face the judgment of God and the penalty of hell, or you'll face the welcoming of God into eternal life and the company of God and all the saints have gone before us. On that day, when you will keep your appointment, you had better have a plan. And there's only one plan that has power. And the only reason that plan has power is because the perfect and sinless Son of God gave himself on a cross. So the cross testifies to the power of God. Returning to 1 Corinthians 1, you'll note there's another description, though. For it is written, he quotes here again from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And the balance of this paragraph juxtaposes or compares Jesus' work and the wisdom of God against the wisdom of the world. So the cross not only testifies to the power of God, but also to the wisdom of God. And you'll note he's not shy about explaining how this all works. Apparently in the contemporary context of the first century, there was much attention given to worldly wisdom. I would suggest that our culture today uh, does much the same. You'll note he asked the question, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? A reference to the one who's doing teaching, or that's a reference to the rabbis, actually. So, are there imams today? Are there gurus today? Are there priests and preachers who walk around teaching and gathering a crowd and, and offering pearls of wisdom? Absolutely. Then the next phrase, where is the debater of this age? <laughs> uh, I frankly get terribly weary. Uh, I don't know if you do. Some of you don't because you tell me all about it. And I, I love you. I just don't like your TV programs. Because if you put five people on TV arguing about stuff, Brothers, sisters, that ain't nothing except selling advertising. And if there, is no, if there is no protagonist and no antagonist, it's not at all interesting. So producers just do that because they say stuff that's provocative to get you riled up so you'll go tell your preacher about what you saw. 
Listen, I don't know if those people believe what they say. And you don't either. And it doesn't matter. Because the purpose is selling advertising. And the only reason they sell advertising is because you keep watching. Where's the debater of this age? You know, much of the culture today is built around the concept of debate. It's no different. In 2,000 years, we're still debating. My theory, friend, is that if they haven't figured it out in 2,000 years, you're probably not the Savior who's going to fix it all for us. You're probably not any smarter than, I don't know, any number of dozens and dozens, hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of people who have joined the debate before you. I just don't have any energy for it. I am smart. I mean, I am capable. You're capable. You can hear and make decisions, make discerning judgments, and you will, and you should. But I assure you, friend, that the purpose of these kinds of opportunities is not to further wisdom that actually results in better things. The purpose is simply to stir things up and become more and more and more stirred up. Because that drives eyes, that drives ears, that drives dollars, that drives a lot of other things. Am I oversimplifying? Of course I am. Which is exactly what they do on these programs. They oversimplify. Where is the debater of this age? Have they helped us actually find peace? Is anybody more at rest after you listen to this? Anybody more comforted? Anybody more helped? I want to suggest to you it's a very thin line. We have to be very, very careful. The cross testifies to the wisdom of God. What's really in play here? Well, there are world powers. There are cosmic powers. And there's God. And one of those is going to bring peace to your heart. One of those is going to bring rest to your life. One of those is better than the other. The Bible says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. How? I will send my son and he will die. Now, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He identifies two subcategories of people. One, Greeks, others, Jews. Now, the Greeks, of course, more like our current contemporary system. They love to debate. They love to strategize. They love to think. They love to argue. You remember that Paul, when he goes to Athens, Athens would have been sort of the Ivy League institution of its day. When Paul goes to Athens, they invite him to come to Mars Hill, and there he stands on the outcropping, the Areopagus, and he begins to proclaim. And these philosophers would gather around this outcropping, and they would listen to the new thing that's come from east or west or north or south. And so Paul has come to town, and we want to hear what he's got to say. And he preaches in Acts 17. He preaches. And what does he preach? He preaches the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells the gospel. And they say, who is this seed picker? The, the Greek word is literally seed picker. I mean, it's a guy who's, who's it's, not a, it's not a complimentary term. It's a pejorative term. Who is this seed picker? Guy from the farm. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? But he... He testifies of the power and the wisdom of God. But the world 
in his day, even as the world in our day considers the cross and says, that's not wisdom, that's foolishness. Foolishness. The Greeks evaluated it then, they continue to evaluate it now. The world that we live in considers this to be foolishness. You're telling me that somehow that the Son of God is in heaven and he lays aside his glory and he's born of a virgin. You want me to believe that, right? Well, I don't believe that. And by the way, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, why would you believe that? Why would you believe that a man is born of a virgin? That's not logical. That's not worldly wisdom. That's not intellectual. In fact, it's anti-intellectual. It doesn't happen. It's never happened. It's not going to happen. There are scientific processes that monkey around with it. But I assure you, friend, it's not going to happen. Because it doesn't happen. It didn't happen except once. And the only reason it happened is because of the miracle of God. Because the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she was now expecting not just any child, but the Son of Almighty God. You want me to believe that? Then you want me to believe that He's the only person who've ever lived who's never made a mistake. I've known a lot of people. They all make mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. Everybody I know makes mistakes. But you're telling me this guy, this Jesus, who grew up nowheresville, Nazareth, that's nowhere. Galilee, that's nowhere. You're telling me there's some Jewish guy, son of a carpenter. Oh, by the way, he's not the son of a carpenter. He's just the son of a carpenter's wife. You're telling me he was perfect. Perfect. You want me to believe that? Yeah, I want you to believe that. Those are the facts. Well, I don't believe that. You see, it's really hard to believe this gospel. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. Then you want me to believe that somehow, because he was foolish, because he was not politically savvy, because he was weakling, he got himself killed on a Roman cross. And you want me to believe that somehow all of that is merely according to the plan of God. You want me to believe that it was God's will that his son come to earth and die in a very cruel, heinous way on a cross, virtually naked on a hillside outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You want me to believe that? Yes, I do want you to believe that. That's the truth. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that somehow dying is winning. I don't believe that somehow miscalculating your political enemies and losing is actually winning. I don't believe that. And of course, who would believe that apart from the Holy Spirit? And then, of course, the final chapter is you want me to believe that he was raised from the dead three days later, because that's all part of the plan too. Yes, friend, I do. I want you to believe that three days later, the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And he appeared to his disciples, to various women, and to all kinds of other people over a period of some four weeks or so, and then he ascended to the Father, and now he sits at the right hand of God. I want you to believe that too. Well, I don't believe that. After all, why should I believe that apart from the Holy Spirit? You see, friend, it's hard to believe 
It's hard to believe if you have no frame of reference whatsoever. And you know power. There, there are scales on your eyes. There's a coldness to your heart. You have no interest in these things. And you believe this is foolishness. Then, of course, that's one category. Then the other category is Jews. The Jews, they're not interested in the worldly wisdom side of the, this thing. They're interested in the sign value of it. Because after all, those who in their culture, in their religion, those who have come from God, they do a lot of signs. So you'll read the gospels and you'll say, Jesus does miracles. In fact, the gospel of John is designed in such a way as to show seven consecutive miracles of Jesus, turning water into wine, he uh, giving sight to Bartimaeus and so forth. Ultimately, the final sign, the crucifixion and resurrection. The, the Gospel of John is designed to show sign, 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 sign. And Jesus makes this statement. I have done all these signs, and yet you still do not believe. Because the signs seemingly or supposedly for the Jewish mind, for the Jewish heart, validate that you've come from God. I assure you, friend, that in spite of that, they would not believe. Because in order to believe, they would have to deny self and acknowledge that the Son of God is in their midst. They would have to die to self. They would have to die to pride. They would, they would have to die to their own human arrogance, arrogance and their own human insufficiency. They would, again, think themselves competent. They would think themselves proud. They would think themselves able. They would think themselves wise. They, they, they're too sophisticated to know that this is indeed the truth. The cross testifies to the wisdom of God that he would thwart the thinking of men, that he would show himself strong in spite of the wisdom of God, or rather the wisdom of man, that the wisdom of God would be greater than. You'll note that he's already quoted from Isaiah. I want to turn to that passage briefly, Isaiah 29. Just read it briefly. Verse 13, uh, in, in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah is reminding the people of God, Israel, and specifically in Jerusalem, in the capital city where all the action was, he, he's reminding them that they are foolish and that he intends to turn their foolishness on its head, upside down. Here, here's the passage, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The only reason that they are afraid of me is because they've been coached. There's not an innate desire to honor God or please God or submit to God. They're just coached that way. You don't say that. Don't say that. Don't do that. Don't think that. Don't go with those people because they've been coached. Their only fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, verse 14, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. That is the verse, Isaiah 29, 14, that he quotes here in 1 Corinthians 1. The cross testifies that God intends in the latter days to do exactly what he's done in Jesus, which is to thwart the wisdom of men, to turn it on its head. Now, in fairness to the Jews, 
They had an aversion to crucifixion. It needs to be said, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. They just perfected crucifixion. Many cultures practice crucifixion. But the Romans perfected crucifixion and used it liberally. They did so not only as punishment, but as a deterrent. Remember, people are, are publicly hung on a stake in such a way as to show what happens when you stand up against the state. So in this case, the Romans wanted the people to be afraid of Rome, afraid of their soldiers, afraid of their power over them. They could take their life and they could humiliate you in the process and cause great suffering and sorrow. It was not unusual for them to stay on the cross for three or four days before they died. But you'll remember the only reason that Jesus did not is because, first of all, he had given his life, and so he gave up his spirit and he died subsequent to sundown. But you'll remember the Jews, because the next day was a high holy day, they didn't want these fellows on the cross on their sacred day. So they said, we want you to kill them, not let them suffer unnecessarily for two or three or four days, because that would be normal for the Romans to leave you up there and your family and your friends, your enemies walk by, mock you, hurl insults at you, because in fact, you have suffered this because of some crime you've done. You remember in Job's case, Job is experiencing all of this sorrow, all this pain, loss of family, loss of possessions and everything. And his friends come up and they basically say, if you could summarize his three friends, their refrain is this, you are the reason this is happening. You. That was not the reason. That was just the accusation of his friends. So it would be customary for the people of Jesus' day, if they saw a man on a cross, well, who goes on a cross? Only those who are guilty. Jesus is on a cross, therefore he's guilty. By the way, the book of Deuteronomy said, cursed is the man who's hung on a tree. Deuteronomy, crucifixion exists even back as far as Deuteronomy. No Roman Empire by that time, of course, but crucifixion exists, and cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. So what does God eventually do with his own son? He hangs him on a tree. This is not the wisdom that we're looking for. This is not the way we expect. This is not the experience we expect for our Messiah. So there are many today who reject Jesus. Why? (laughs) Because he doesn't fit their box. I need a Savior who's going to do A or B or C. I need someone who's going to fix this in my life. And if God will fix this in my life, then I will whatever. I'll go along with him. I will submit to him. I will honor him. So where does this leave us? Simply, it leaves us with three kinds of people. First, there are the Greeks who think that somehow by debating, arguing, fussing about what's real and what's not real, that somehow we're going to be brought to God. That we're going to have peace, we're going to have rest, that our souls will be comforted. You know many people just like that. They substitute worldly pursuits, for submission to God, and they think that somehow by pursuing the so-called better life, 
that they can have that and that that life is going to solve, as it were, their eternal destiny. There's a second group who are looking for power. They're looking for signs. They're, they're looking for miraculous things. But of course, even when God does miraculous things, they excuse them away. Yeah, I know he was blind from birth, and I know that he now sees, but still not buying it. I know that was water, but now it's wine, still not buying it. I know that Jesus was crucified. It was testified by the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers sealed the, the tomb. The Roman soldiers stood guard at the tomb. I know all that's true. I'm still not buying it. Because you see, even if you're looking for signs or if you're looking for so-called proof, it doesn't matter how much proof God gives you. If you don't believe, you don't believe. If you won't believe, you won't believe. But there is a third category, people. And I hope that's the category you're in today, which is the people who look at the cross and say, it is wondrous. Oh, it's tragic, but it's wondrous. It's wonderful. It is the powerful cross. It is the beautiful cross. It is the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. It is the cross of Christ. Turns out that Isaac Watts had it right. He had it right. Why don't you sing with me? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing. 
so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The power of the cross is ultimately understood in the realization that God loved us so much that he would give his only begotten son not just to die but to die in the least attractive and the least sensical way possible and he did all of that in fulfillment of his eternal plan to rescue me from me and to rescue you from you it is indeed a wonderful cross but let us not forget that it is only wonderful because the eternal Son of God died there for you. And if you ignore that, or your friends ignore that, or your family ignores that, or anybody that you know ignores that, then they are still in their sins and they have no solution for that. Thanks be to God for a beautiful cross made beautiful by the shed blood of the eternal Son of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we proclaim again our love and our deep devotion to you. Give grace to us who believe and give grace this morning to those who have not yet believed. May they come to see the glory of God in the dying of Jesus for their sins. God, thank you for the gift of your Son. We are so blessed beyond measure. And how will you, who has given us your son, with him, give us everything else? Thank you. We are needy, and you have come to our need. Thank you. We love you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.